I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 10 in the series, Finding the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Easily the least popular in the modern world among the teachings of Jesus is the art of self-denial. Indoctrinated on all sides to indulge desire, the very suggestion that one would deny themselves is a set of fingernails on the chalkboard of the status quo. And yet, Jesus taught this very thing was not only fundamental in becoming his apprentice, it is a prerequisite in the daily way of life. How many of you have read or were read as a child uh, The Giving Tree by Shel Silver? Okay, a lot of you. Great. Well, that's helpful for this analogy. If you haven't, bear with me. I'll do a bit of explaining. Um, Elizabeth Bird, I read this week, who's a specialist for the New York Library, said this about The Giving Tree. She called it one of the most controversial and divisive books in children's literature. She went on to say, to my mind, you are either a Giving Tree fan or you loathe and abhor it. Um, And the reason is no one is quite sure what The Giving Tree means to communicate with its very short, simple story of a tree and a boy that she loves. The tree, if you don't know the story, I won't give the whole thing away for you, but the tree gives up much over the duration of this boy's life for his sake, and the boy mostly just asks for more as the story carries on into his old age. And uh, people pose the question, well, is it about noble and benevolent self-sacrifice, which is usually Camp A, fans of the giving tree, or is it about abusive codependency, which is a Camp B? And this is a very real debate going on in children's literature and has for quite some time. And then, furthermore, did the author intend to comment on either thing, or does he simply record fictitious events and leave us to analyze them, like a kind of uh, kid's book Rorschach test. Uh, Whether it's good or bad or neutral, the story is about someone who gives up parts of themselves. And this is why I think the story was destined for controversy. Some of the great cliches of fiction are characters who are caught in the debate over self-sacrifice. So you know the ones. Usually you have like the meek but heroic protagonist who's willing to put themselves at risk for the sake of others around them. And then often beside them is kind of the cranky self-preservationist who snorts and invites this hero to, you know, wise up and look out for number one. That's the only way you survive, all that kind of stuff. Because under the right circumstances, self-sacrifice is to be celebrated. Typically, we agree on that. We know this from life. We know this from fiction. But even in fiction, self-sacrifice sports a tolerance threshold before it tips from admirable to foolish or from noble to ignoble or from loving to unhealthy or codependent or whatever it might be. And I would argue that disagreement as to the nature of self-sacrifice is at the very heart of our willingness or unwillingness to follow Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, last month, uh, my wife Abby and I, we took a very brief trip to Los Angeles. And during that short time, I overheard two conversations on this trip. It was like a 24-hour trip, one on the plane and another in a restaurant. And in both talks, I heard one party say to another party something along the lines of, I just can't imagine God asking someone to deny a part of who they are. And yet, this very concept is at the heart of Jesus' teachings. Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. 
Matthew chapter 16. Tonight, we conclude a teaching series that began all the way back in early October called Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. If you're new or you've been here and there throughout the series, I highly recommend going back and catching up on the podcast. This has been, I believe, foundational work for our church. And we've begun to build out the beginnings for what I hope will become a robust paradigm for spiritual warfare, the supernatural realm, angels and demons, the devil. We've worked uh, to look inward at our own brokenness, the ways in which we are bent out of shape, what the scriptures call the flesh. And we've talked about the ways in which the behaviors that flow from that brokenness affect culture and become normalized in society. This is in the New Testament called the world. And tonight, I want to end with something of an epilogue. The ellipsis at the end of the series is a conundrum, and the conundrum is at the center of the way of Jesus, and it goes by the title, The Crossed. Let's read Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 21, if you're there. Matthew 16, verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Notice the strength of that language. He must. Verse 22, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples and friends, took him aside and began to rebuke him, Jesus. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, pause for a moment. Remember, at this point in the story, in context, Peter believes that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. So it's Jesus' job to vanquish evil and to overcome Rome and to rescue his people. And now suddenly he's on about suffering and dying. So Peter's like, how the heck is this going to accomplish your goals as the Messiah? Jesus, never, this can never happen to you. And interestingly, whenever we broach the topic of Jesus' teachings on nonviolence, for example, turning the other cheek as a means of overcoming evil with good, many people today still have the exact same reaction. No, that cannot be the way. Never. It makes no sense. Let's see how Jesus responds to Peter. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Remember, this is Jesus' close friend and his apprentice, so imagine how he must have felt to hear this from Jesus himself. But don't think of this as like kind of thoughtless and cruel name-calling. Jesus is actually commenting on the way that the devil intends to stumble us or get in our way, trip us up in Jesus' language, make us fall or give up or lose heart or get lost. And here in context, it is our unwillingness to die. Peter says, or Jesus says to his disciples, I must die. Peter says, never and Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. And before you think, well, sure, that's what Jesus had to do. It's part of his whole mission. We know that now. Look at his next stanza of commands for those who would follow him. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must, there's that word again, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For each and every one of you sitting in this room, hearing these words, who aspires to follow this Jesus of Nazareth, hear this, everyone is going to have to die. 
The symbol most commonly associated with the Christian faith in general is a cross. And to many, now, it means little more than jewelry or like a print for leggings or, you know, like the decorative adornment perched atop an old church building, and it's lovely. Uh, but in the first century, the cross was a symbol of shame and death. So imagine if, for example, the family of one of the Coptic Christians that was beheaded in ISIS video selected for the centerpiece of their home a blood-spattered machete. Or uh, if that was the case, people would grimace when they came into their homes knowing the story. They would turn their heads. They would think it in poor taste. But really, even that analogy doesn't quite capture the scandal of it because a recognized martyr is celebrated and admirable and praiseworthy. So instead, imagine maybe a mother whose son is executed as a criminal, as a murderer, the painful shame brought on that family. And imagine she then takes to wearing a charm around her neck shaped like an electric chair. See, to us, the cross is romantic, pregnant with symbolism and beautifully meaningful resonance, but not to Peter, not to the other apostles. To them, the cross is more than just defeat. It's worse. It's misery. It's shame. It's suffering. It's scandal, humiliating, criminal death. It was as if Jesus had suddenly turned to them out of nowhere, started talking about the fact that he has to die. And they're like, what? No, this is a bad idea. Bad idea for your mission, Jesus. And suddenly he says to them, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to sit down, arms tied behind your back, chin up, neck exposed, and wait for the machete. Everyone is going to have to die. For many throughout the centuries of the way of Jesus, this has been a literal death, and that, that continues to this day. But for every disciple of Jesus, it is a kind of death through self-denial. The least popular in all the modern world of Jesus' teachings is easily self-denial. No teaching of Jesus comes with such aggravated offense to the modern sensibility as self-denial. The gospel of our culture is easily a gospel of self-fulfillment. You know, the gospel of Instagram is narcissistic self-celebration. In 2013, the term selfie was added to the Oxford Dictionary as a legitimate word. The gospel of entitlement assures us that we deserve comfort and security and entertainment and bells and whistles. And if something disrupts said comfort, we have ways of fighting back. We have more screens and more feeds and outlets for our outrage and complaint and pills and apps and porn the pursuit of happiness. The denial of self is a foreign concept. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a friend pointed out to me that the closest thing we have in our culture to self-denial are fitness obsession and careerism. So when one diets and works out and joins like, you know, a, a cult like CrossFit or whatever, um, and they, <laughs> they say no to certain desires for the sake of long-term payoff. Not necessarily a bad thing at all. can be great. It's a popular thing to do. But even this, in the long run, is about self-fulfillment because it's about health and vitality or looking good or feeling good, living longer. And don't get me wrong, health and fitness can be great, obviously, but my point is that the closest paradigms we have for self-denial fall short in understanding what Jesus means by the term because we do them to get something, something for ourselves. It's not a bad something, per se, but there it is. In careerism, one sacrifices finances for school or relationships for work or time and sleep for advancement, and they do it for more money or more status or more position or more comfort or more security. And not all of that is always bad, but once again, it's self-denial with a payout. 
in the long run. Ultimately, self-fulfillment. All that to say, it is very, very difficult for us to conceive of a happy, fulfilled life that does not involve us getting the things that we desire. Earlier, I mentioned some conversations that I overheard uh, last month when Abby and I were in California. I should point out, by the way, that uh, I wasn't eavesdropping on those conversations, uh, and I stress the personal pronoun I because Abby, my wife who was with me, she was eavesdropping, and she does it all the time. Often we'll be together, and I'll be talking to her, you know, across the table, and it's like the deer thing. She's suddenly like this watching a person, and I'm like, what are you doing? They can see you. I can see you. She's like, I'm trying to hear what they're talking about. So watch out for that if you're around her, by the way. At any rate, I just happened to overhear conversations happening really loud around me in a quiet moment. Um, and there were people debating Christianity and the Bible and self-denial. Really interesting conversation going around. And some of you probably guessed just from that passing anecdote that I had earlier when I first mentioned it, the conversation was uh, around the topic of sexuality. And the modern political debate around sexuality and Jesus is an interesting one because there are certain assumptions that seem to permeate the conversation. The assumption that it's always wrong or evil for something to stand in the way of another person getting what they want. And any such interference is oppression in the modern vernacular. And if one cannot obtain what they desire, they cannot be happy or realize their full personhood. So people sit on planes or in restaurants saying, man, I just can't imagine Jesus telling someone to give up part of themselves. And understandably so, because nearly everything in the cultural milieu screams at us that self-denial is oppression and that self-fulfillment is the road to happiness and truth. And yet here stands Jesus, everyone must deny themselves, take up their cross if they want to follow me. Now, if you've been in or around the church for a while, maybe you've heard this whole like die to self language before. But familiar or unfamiliar, unfamiliar, this is a premise in need of elaboration because the mistake one might make is to confuse dying to oneself, as it's often put, with like the death of oneself. And I know that sounds like I didn't say anything different just then. But what I mean is that the idea is not you are bad. You are awful. You are totally depraved. You're worthy of death. Does God think of you that way? No, absolutely not. God is a good and loving Father. You are precious to God. You, are, you have unsurpassable worth in God's eyes. Whether you are a disciple of Jesus or not, you are the constant, unwavering object of His love, His delight, His tenderness, tenderness His attention, His affection. So what then does Jesus mean when he invites any would-be disciple to come and to deny themselves if you are not inherently bad and awful in and of yourself? Well, first I would argue that a good working definition of self in a New Testament context might be quite simply, the self is our desire when it is disconnected from God. And this comes not from me, actually, but from an apprentice of Jesus called Paul. So if you have your Bible out, mark your place here in Matthew, because we'll be back before it's over, and turn to the right in your Bibles to the letter we call Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2. 
After the four biographies of Jesus, what are often called the Gospels, the New Testament authors are essentially doing their best to work out the implications of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, all of his teachings, his way of life, and that's what this letter, Galatians, is about. Galatians 2 is such a passage. Look down at verse 20. Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, uh, it doesn't take like a Bible scholar to figure out that Paul is quite obviously alive at the time of writing. So what's he getting at with all this like I no longer live stuff? Turn over just a a page or two to chapter 5 of Galatians and let's read beginning in verse 24. Chapter 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be overcome, conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So there it is. To crucify or to deny the self is to crucify or deny the flesh with its passions and desires. So for Paul, the denial of self is the affirmation of the Spirit. No to the flesh implies yes to the Spirit. Not just an abstinence, but a permission to the Spirit of God. Now, the current cultural definition of self is kind of like the cult of pseudo-authenticity, the whole hashtag do what makes you happy, Diet Coke kind of thing. And that is, if something makes you happy, then doing said thing is a realization of your authentic self. Just do you, Diet Coke, Instagram, all that. And so self becomes collapsed into a singular understanding of just the authentic you, doing what you want. But the New Testament uh, actually bisects the understanding of the self, and part of it is ugly. And that's the desires that are primal and self-gratifying at the expense of other people, the part of you that's willing to step on others to get what you want. And we all have this inside of us. But in the New Testament, there's another dimension of you, a will that is aligned with the ways of love. And both of these are at war in the heart of every human being, you, me, humanity, Peter will write more explicitly about this when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, I urge you to abstain from sinful or literally fleshly desires which wage war against your soul. Let me show you one more example from the scriptures. Turn just a few books to the right to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. When you're there, read along with the very first verse, or beginning with the very first verse. Colossians 3, 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now, 
If you have accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow behind him in life, meaning he's the master, you are the apprentice, then something has changed. Now there is an old you. And this is true regardless of how you feel. You may not feel like suddenly a switch gets flipped and now there's an old you and a new you. Um, When I had my first child years ago, something changed. Whether I felt it or not, there was an old me who was not a father and a new me who was, whether I felt like it or not. So if you follow Jesus, this old version of you served a very different master and that master was desire, meaning you were at the mercy of what you wanted for better or for worse. And Paul ends his list mentioning this concept, which is often translated as covetousness, which is idolatry or greed, which is idolatry. And by this, he means to explain that the worship of idols is about more than those who like bow down before statues and chant. He's saying, if your desire supersedes God, that's idolatry. That's the worship of other gods. And to covet is more than just to desire something. It's to want something that belongs to someone else. To want more than just a job like a person that's above you in their career position, it's to want their job. Or not simply like scrolling through a social media feed and thinking like, oh man, that looks nice, I admire that, but to think, I want their life. Or maybe you wouldn't think those particular things, you're above it, Um, but all of us, honestly, have been willing to do other, others harm for our own sake, meaning we want our spouse to be the one to change the diaper or diffuse the tantrum so that we don't have to. We want to feel vindicated by a rude or snarky or passive-aggressive comment, though it tears someone else down. We want to feel entertained by gossip, though it demeans its victims. We do others harm for our own comfort and convenience, or we inconvenience others for the sake of ourselves at the very least. Why? Why would we do that? Well, the simple answer is because we want to desire. Your old self does this. It replaces God with desire in the seat of ultimate value in life. And the call for this new person that has decided to follow Jesus, he's the master, you're the apprentice, is to desire God most and to place all other desire below God which inevitably invites a lifetime of self-denial. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to innumerable competing options. No to shopping however I want, spending my money however I want, eating however I want. No to hyper-individualism. No to social media image curation. No to me-first careerism. Get ahead, the American dream. No to sexuality expressed however I want. Instead, the disciple of Jesus, by definition, says to his or her master, what you say, I will do. Where you say go, I will go. You are the master, Jesus. I am the apprentice. And of course, it's, it's easy to pick on our culture's apprehensiveness to the invitation of Jesus. Nowadays, it seems like, man, self-gratification's everywhere. Of course, we don't like this. But honestly, it was, a, it was a tough sell back in the first century as well. And Jesus knew that. Okay, now back over to Matthew chapter 16. And let's pick up where we left off before we end. Matthew 16, verse 25 
Jesus anticipates as a master teacher that when he's going on about denying yourself, taking up your cross, oh, they're going to have some pushback on this. So he, go, he goes ahead with answers to those questions before they come. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 16. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. And notice the plainness with which Jesus teaches. He doesn't say that whoever saves their life will very likely lose it or that whoever loses their life will more often than not find it. No, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. These are the options, the only two options. But all of this uh, begins to sound hyper-spiritual. So let's be a bit straightforward and pragmatic. The first option is a popular one. Deny Jesus, follow the self. In doing so, you are allowing what you want to enjoy the throne of ultimate authority in your life. It sounds extreme, but more than likely, you know people who live exactly this way. It doesn't necessarily mean they're awful or mean-spirited or really even unpleasant, but to live this way does something to a person's soul. For example, it comes with perpetual dissatisfaction. Because desire, by nature, is endless. My uh, son, like his dad, is a big fan of the Jurassic Park franchise. But unlike his dad, he's never seen a Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> he's only five. Um, but he owns quite a few Jurassic Park toys because whenever like a birthday or Christmas occasion comes around, that's all he wants. That's all he asks for. And as soon as he has one, he wants another one to complement the one that he has, so that he can carry out these scenes that he's only heard about. Um, so, you know, he gets the Tyrannosaur, and he needs the Carnotaurus to go with it so he can recreate the poster that he's seen. If he gets the Pterosaur, he needs the Dimorphodon. If he gets the Dilophosaurus, he needs the Ceratosaurus, and the list goes on and on. And then he'll, he'll actually get them out and arrange them in a big display, and then he'll be like, turn on the music. So I have to put on the soundtrack, and then he'll just stand there and look at it like this while the music plays. It's, it's a beautiful thing the sweeping score on the stereo, and he just stands there admiring the scene. So after Christmas, um, there were quite a few new ones, if you can imagine. Everyone in the family is just like, oh, there's another one. It was great. Uh, I enjoy it too. And then uh, that night, he was going to bed, and we're like, he's like, I can't wait to get up and play with all these toys. And I was like, you know what we should do tomorrow? We should get out all of these Jurassic Park toys and like have this massive action figure adventure. And he smiled and said, I wish I had the super colossal T-Rex. And uh, I was like, dang, man, <laughs> you just got almost all of them except that one. And don't get me wrong, it's not that he's uh, ungrateful or bad. He loves the toys. He plays with them all the time. He really enjoys them. But want begets want, just a little bit more. And we actually do the exact same thing, not with Jurassic World toys, I suspect, but with money or position, or acclaim, or affection, or praise, whatever it might be. I wish I just had a little bit more. And that dissatisfaction with unfulfilled desire leads to the disintegration of your personhood. Because when you're ruled by want, and when want is never satisfied, there is so much to fear. 
What if there's not enough money? What if I get rejected? What if I get fired? What if I get sick? What if someone dies? And I'm not saying it's unreasonable to want things to go well or to be upset when they don't. That's fine. But when what you want is all in all, not getting what you want is your undoing. Uh, I've been pretty honest with you guys over the last few years. Um, I hope with my ongoing struggle with uh, self-loathing and with despair, this is light dinner conversation I bring up when I'm hanging out with people, but these, <laughs> these last few months, God has actually been challenging me with what I already know to be true and inviting me to um, a new season of learning to actually love and care for myself and give up on despair, all that kind of stuff. And uh, just a few months ago, there was a bad day, a dark day in my mind, and I was like re- in the midst of reading the Scriptures, praying, but I was stewing in my own emotional turmoil, and I was thinking about how painful things would be if A or B did not happen. If this doesn't change or if this doesn't change, it's going to be the worst, it's going to be the worst. And I felt like God's Spirit said to me, very tender, very gentle, He's like, man, you know, Josh, what you're really saying is that if you don't get your way, you will be undone. And he didn't say it to like shame me or make me feel like an idiot. I didn't. It was more like, listen, you know better than this. Because a disintegrated person is ruled by desire. And desire in and of itself is not bad. Uh, The way of Jesus is not the way of Buddha, meaning the idea is not to purge desire from your life. It's to order your desires correctly to put the good ones before the bad ones and then eventually do away with the bad ones altogether. Dallas Willard said it like this, to live in the flesh, to live with uncrucified affections and desires is simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position in our lives. Whatever we want becomes the most important thing. This is what happens when we are living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they are all we have. We look to them as if they were everything in our lives, thinking of my worth, my glory, my appearance, thinking of my power to sustain myself. And desire, on top of all this, is untrustworthy. You don't have to be a wise old sage to know from your own experience that desire is erratic, it's unpredictable, it varies wildly from season to season and day to day, even moment by moment. And desire is deceitful. We want things because we think they will make us happy and that they will provide us with a better life, but often those very same things destroy us, especially when they're things like money or power or sex or image. And so we linger in slavery to want. Slavery because if do what makes you happy is our highest inspiration or aspiration in life, What is there to do but chase the carrot dangling from the stick? And every time we get close enough to take a bite, the carrot just replenishes itself. Even if the chase destroys you and others around you, you have no choice but to go on running. And we can all see this as like a metaphor for something like substance abuse, but apply that same image to the socially acceptable addictions, things like smartphone, digital addiction, TV show addictions, uh, your career, your diet, fitness, a relationship, whatever it might be. When satisfaction with life is contingent on you getting what you want, you are enslaved. And as if, as if to add insult to injury, rarely happy as well, at least not in the long-term, long-term or meaningful sense, because desire is often unfulfilled. It's a bottomless pit. It's an abyss, much like the soul of the one who has no ch- choice but to chase it. So, 
this is the life of following the self, according to the scriptures, dissatisfied, disintegrated, ruled by desire, enslaved by want. But this is only one of the two options. According to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, there is another better way. The other option is to deny the self and to follow instead King Jesus. In doing so, one may learn to access a deep well of soul satisfaction because we can learn to live in such a way that our happiness is not contingent on getting what we want. And I'm talking about so much more than just like the corny wall art, you know, that says like, it is well that you like post online when something's going bad and people are like, oh my gosh, what's going on? You put the wall art on the internet. I'm talking about like, a defiant resolve within the deepest part of your personhood that knows that you are the beloved of Jesus and you will always be God's beloved child. And because this is true, we will endure and we will be satisfied on the deepest soul level. That is a peaceful, long-term security, a profound contentment of the soul. When we get what we want... And when we do not get what we want, our joy is an ongoing connectedness to God, not in the comfort or predictability of life. And that's what it means to be integrated. Remember, in the story of the Bible, you're not a soul inside a body. You are a body, and you are a soul, and you are a mind. It's all you. And to be integrated is to experience your entire personhood, meaning your body, your soul, your mind, your heart, your relationships, your thought life, your emotional experience, all of it in harmony for good, in step with the Spirit of God. All of these seemingly disparate parts of you that wage war inside you are coming under the rule and reign of Jesus more all the time. Not just the way that you talk, but the way that you think as well. And not just the way that you think, but the way that you feel as well. And not just the way that you feel, but the things that you do as a result, all integrated and in step with the Spirit of God. So that... Rather than being ruled by desire, we become motivated by love. Remember, the flesh is compelled by self-gratification, often at the expense of other people. But the integrated soul is motivated by love, to will the good of another ahead of and even at the expense of your own good. This is the love that originates in God Himself and is embodied in Jesus and exemplified on the cross. The apprentice of Jesus is learning to make each and every decision and action an outworking of self-sacrificing love. And why not? The secure disciple knows their true source of satisfaction is steady. And as a result, they are learning to bring every aspect of who they are under the authority of Jesus. What you say to do, I will do. And then counterintuitively, the more that we become submitted to the rule of King Jesus, the more that we are set free. Imagine a life of desires rightly ordered the way that they're supposed to be for human flourishing, according to the way of Jesus in the scriptures. There's no concern for impressing other people. There's no concern for status or accumulation or materialism. There's no anxiety about money. There's no tyranny of want. There's no slavery to lust or to greed or to gossip or to laziness because everything is a gift. 
Gratitude is a way of life, a disposition. They have learned to see other people, whether they are friends or enemies, as the objects of God's affection, and so they treat them accordingly. Imagine a person who, like all of us, wanders in and out of the storms of life. They rejoice like anyone would. They suffer and mourn like everyone does. But the true source of their joy and steadiness, their reason for being, is unshakable. I want that for myself as an apprentice of Jesus. And I know I can't be alone in that. Jesus taught that these are the only two options. Deny him and follow the self. Dissatisfied, disintegrated, ruled by desire, enslaved by want. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he warned about losing your soul. Or option B, deny the self and follow Jesus. Learn satisfaction, true satisfaction. Become integrated, your thought life, the way that you talk, the way that you behave, the way that you feel, compelled by love rather than desire and self-gratification. And because of all that, truly set free. This is the invitation of Jesus, and it begins with the cross. Maybe uh, some of you have heard the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously worded in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. All of discipleship is predicated on our ability or inability to realize this prerequisite. Again, this from Dallas Willard. He says, self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this and this alone, the key is the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. Meaning what Jesus called life to the fullest, will not be realized without the foundation of self-denial. Everyone is going to have to die. A few weeks ago, I was uh, talking theology with someone who was picking my brain about Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and enemy love. And this person asked a really valid question, and it wasn't the first time that I'd been asked. They said, what do you say to someone who objects with, you know, something like, well, that's easy for you to say. You're a privileged white American male. It's easy for you to go on about enemy love when you haven't faced racism or sexism or xenophobia. And that's honestly a really fair question. It's a fair critique, uh, honestly. Um, But I thought about it, and I was talking to this fellow, and I said, you know, the way of Jesus costs no matter who we are. There will be seasons of life in which it seems you are paying more or someone you love is paying more, and that might be accurate, but it costs everyone. My therapist, uh, who's a disciple of Jesus, um, has this expression he says sometimes, which is just quite simply, pain is pain. He says that people tend to assign unique values to various types of trauma, and there may be some validity to that. But in the end, trauma is trauma, meaning it has the same types of psychological effects. So for one person, giving up, as silly as it might sound to someone else, giving up the pursuit of money and security and comfort might seem even more far-fetched than giving up a relationship or a sexual identity. Or for another, the call of simplicity and generosity is fine. That's easy. They do that already. 
but if they're asked to, or to follow the way of celibacy, that ask is too much. We all have desires, things we believe we need to make us happy, and all of them are going to have to take a seat beneath Jesus. There, many of them will become rearranged or simply edited or tweaked or matured or transformed, but a great many of them will simply have to die, and it will hurt, and it will be tremendously difficult at times. There are costs each of us are going to have to pay. Some may seem easy and others much less so. But, and please listen, to deny Jesus is far more costly. And I'm not just talking about like fire and brimstone stuff. I'm talking about a life ruled by anxiety and disintegration where the way that you talk is not the way that you feel and the way that you think is not the way that you act or whatever it might be. I'm talking about a life ruled by self-gratification. I'm talking about what happens when you trade intimacy, for example, for lust or contentment for short-term pleasure or trust for the affair, infidelity, or faithfulness for the ease of bailing out. Man, there's so much celebration in our culture right now for the person who denounces faith and has like an epiphany and gives up on Jesus or the church or whatever it might be, and they get celebrated. They write books, they start podcasts, they publish blogs. They're called brave, bold pioneers. But to my estimation, bailing out is easy. Anyone can do that. And they have for 2,000 years. Many people do that all the time. It's not new. It's not original. It's not brave. It's not admirable. Faithfulness is difficult. And faithfulness is costly. But bailing out actually costs more. This is why in all four Gospels, which is a rare thing, all four Gospels, we read one of the central most teachings of Jesus, deny yourself take up your cross. Everyone is going to have to die. In fact, uh, Luke even adds an extra word in his account. Jesus says, not just take up your cross and follow me, but take up your cross. Does anyone know? What's that? I thought I heard someone say it. Daily, right. Yes, daily, meaning this is how you are going to have to live every day again and again and again. And it's interesting that Paul refers to himself in that text we read earlier, himself as having been crucified with Christ, which means Paul doesn't believe that Jesus was crucified so that Paul could avoid it. Jesus was crucified to show us how. Now we have to follow in his example. This is a way of life. So often I'm realizing more and more, especially now that I have small children, that we are like small children before God, our Father. And the, you know, the metaphors are endless. It's like a, it's a dream for me, really. I can just keep pulling them from this grab bag. And you, you don't have to be a parent to recognize this familiar picture. A child unwilling to try that new bite of food or to open their eyes before an image that they worry will frighten them or to put in the water or hold a bug or a frog, whatever it might be, or to get on a roller coaster, whatever it might be. And the parent beside them in the image, the one that actually knows them better than they know themselves, being like, no, listen, I know you. Trust me. Trust me. And like children... You and I fret, we wring our fingers, we're unconvinced that God might want us to be happy. He wants us to be well-behaved, we we buy that, sure. He wants us to be stoic and spiritual and benevolent, sure, but happy? I think we're less convinced. 
I read this week that Ignatius of Loyola once defined sin as, and I quote, the unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. To combat um, my propensity for pessimism and despair, uh, for the last few months I've been reading a selection of writers every morning who wrestle with those very subjects. One of them is uh, the Catholic monk Thomas Merton who wrote this, despair is the ultimate development of a pride so great and so stiff-necked that it selects the absolute misery of damnation rather than accept happiness from the hands of God and thereby acknowledge that God is above us and that we are not capable of fulfilling our destiny by ourselves. Frankly, I'm at a point where I no longer feel fit to carry the weight of my own satisfaction. It doesn't work. I haven't been able to pull it off. I do not want to attempt to satiate that profound longing with things that spoil and that spoil me. And this wrestling inside me, the warfare that's in here and out there, this thing that we've been talking about for weeks now, the world, the flesh, the devil, all of it hangs on this. Our ability to look into the eyes of God the Father with trust and taking His hand, allow Him to lead us, even though He will lead us to a cross. Thanks for listening to Van City. There are more teachings and resources at vancity.church where you can connect with us and support us financially at vancity.church/give.